Amen. If you have your Bibles, please be turning to Hebrews chapter 2. We come today to an important text. They're all important, but uh, this one is a beautiful text and very fitting, I think, for today's service with our uh, time in a moment at the Lord's table. So as we think about Hebrews and what we've been seeing as we walk through it, we've mentioned a few times now uh, this idea of these movements, if you will, or sections that we've seen. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, the exordium, speaking of the glories, the dignity, the honor of Christ, both uh, the everlasting Son, the second person of the Trinity, but also the incarnate Savior, the Son of God in that sense. He is the one who, because of what He did, became greater than the angels, and received a name greater than theirs, and that is Son. As we continued on through the rest of chapter 1, we saw this section on the declaration of Christ being greater than the angels, and that's established through seven Old Testament scriptures, clearly making it uh, known that Christ is the glorious enthroned King. Angels serve Him. And what is more, Angels serve those who are His. And so again, the idea here is that Christ is highly exalted above even the angels. And then we came to chapter 2, those first four verses which are an exhortation or warning. Be careful. Be careful. It's easy to drift away. If we neglect the things we've been taught, the things we've heard, we can drift away. Do not neglect so great a salvation, first proclaimed by our Lord, then by those who heard Him, testified to by signs and wonders and miracles, works of power. You know this word has been verified in your presence. Don't neglect it. Don't ignore it. Don't drift from it. Hold fast to it, because God Himself has borne witness to this message. Then we came to this next section, which is a return to exposition, as he begins to bring up some Old Testament scriptures again, and particularly Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is a key scripture if you want to understand where Hebrews is going. And I won't spend too much time here again, but it is important, even with what we're looking at today, to keep in mind what Psalm 8 is about. Psalm 8 is a psalm of David, a psalm in which David speaks of the glories of all that God has created and says, Who is man that you'd be mindful of him? Lowly man, made lower than the angels. Why would you set your mind at all upon man? And yet you crowned him with glory and honor and gave him dominion and authority, placed it under his feet. He's talking about in creation, isn't he? How Adam was given stewardship of the garden. And through the fall and the curse, all that's marred. So David is looking back to what once was, but we know he wasn't only looking backwards, was he? He was also looking forward to what would come. And so there's a second level in Psalm 8 that looks forward to the one who himself would be made lower than the angels, would suffer, would then be crowned with glory and honor, all things being placed under his glorious feet. Now, if we didn't know how to interpret that, the author of Hebrews tells us how, doesn't he? And you could read through the rest of that section that we've been looking at over the last few weeks and you would see that it refers to Jesus. Psalm 8 is fulfilled in Christ. 
Now, that brings us to today's text. And I want us to, to look at it again, but I want you to keep in mind what we looked at last Sunday, that Christ must enter into humiliation and then exaltation for the mission for which He was sent. And then we come to these verses again. For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have uh, partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil and release those who were, through fear of death, all their lifetimes subject to bondage. For indeed, He does not give aid to angels, but He does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, He had to be made like His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, He is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, the rest of that section, incredibly important to understanding what we're looking at today. So feel free to kind of refer back to it, think about it, dwell on it uh, as we discuss this today. But today, I want to bring your attention to verse 10. To verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. As we look at that text today, I want us to look at three quick points. First of all, a question implied. Second of all, a surprising statement. And lastly, a perfect Savior. And we won't be long in the text this morning. We are going to come to the Lord's table shortly. But I do want us to think about this text because it is a glorious text uh, to think about on this Lord's Day where we will gather uh, at the Lord's table. So beginning first with this implied question, uh, if you just think back for a moment, uh, we want to start here. Let me actually begin with this. We want to start where this text starts. We want to start even with the first word that appears in our English translations, which is generally for. Now for is a word that connects us back to what has been said just before it. And in fact, in this sense, for really means something like because, doesn't it? He's going to tell you an answer to something because what he says now is necessary. So what is he answering? What is he giving us an answer to why this must take place? Well, we turn back to what we just looked at, beginning particularly in verse 8. In verse 8, he has ended his quotation of Psalm 8, and he says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Then the author of Hebrews says, Now I want to make you clear on this fact. When it says that He put all things under His feet, He means there is nothing that exists in creation that is not put under His feet. No exceptions to this. Every created thing is now under the feet of our King. Now that is what the psalmist says. And the psalmist says, oh, and by the way, that is already true. That is already the case. 
even if you cannot see it. Because he says, we don't see all things clearly under his feet, but they are. And then he moves on, and I'm going to just paraphrase this, but I want you to think about what he says. But there is something we can see that tells us Psalm 8 is fulfilled. In other words, the author is saying, I'm telling you, Psalm 8 is already fulfilled in Christ. And you say, I can't see it. Because I can't see all things under his feet right now, even though you're telling me they are. And he says, okay, but there is something you can see. You can see the rest of Psalm 8 fulfilled. Because we see Jesus, who though glorious, eternally God, He took on flesh, became lower than the angels, as Psalm 8 says. He suffered. He died. Exalted and glorified with honor and glory. And now exalted to the right hand of the Father. And notice in this, He says the purpose in verse 9 for why all that happened, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now, this is what we looked at last Sunday. I'm not trying to retread it, but I am trying to say it's important to notice that because the author says, for or because. Now, what's he answering? What's he answering for us? He's answering an implicit or implied question in the text. Why was this necessary? Why was this necessary? Okay, let's say for a minute that I agree with you, author of Hebrews. I agree with you. Christ was made lower than the angels. He, was, he suffered. He suffered even death, even the death of the cross. He was crowned with glory and honor. And He did it all that by the grace of God He might taste death for us. I understand what you're arguing, but why? Why do it that way? Now, I want to say that Hebrews moving forward is largely asking that question. Why did it have to happen this way? Why did Jesus have to be humiliated, take on a human nature, take on human flesh, come into this world, suffer, be tempted and tried as we are, yet without sin, go to the cross, give His life as an atonement for us, be buried, rise again, be highly exalted, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and tongue confess, those in the heavens, on earth, under the earth, everyone. Why did it have to happen this way? Now, as I said, the author of Hebrews is going to walk through this at length. You've got to know something of of Moses. You've got to know something of the priesthood. You've got to know something of Melchizedek. You've got to understand something about so many different things to fully appreciate the answer to this question. But, the author says, before we go there, let me give you the Cliff's Notes. I don't know if any of you all uh, were fans of Cliff's Notes. Uh, I don't even know if they had them for some of you all, but I sure enjoyed them uh, when I was in high school. Uh, They would give you the summary of books, you know, if you were running a little behind on reading them. And uh, the author here gives you a Cliff's Notes-like answer. Why is this the way it had to happen? Here's your answer. Because it was fitting. Because it was fitting. Because it was appropriate. Because it was the right way. Because it was the perfect way. It was the way God would do what He did. Now, none of us stand in any place to really question that. We might seek to understand it, but I go back to Romans 
right, where Paul says, who are you, O man, to question God or to contend against God? Uh, so many people go, well, I don't see why God had to send his son to a cross. You've heard this, the cosmic child abuse argument. Uh, God's an abusive father if he sent his son to the cross. There's sometimes we just need to shut up. There just is sometimes we just need to shut up and listen to what the authors are telling us. The author is telling you it had to happen this way. This was the only way it could happen. Why? Now I'll give you a little longer Cliff's Notes. We didn't just need an atoning sacrifice. We did need an atoning sacrifice. And there's only one who could be the spotless Lamb of God, and that is Jesus. We looked at that last Sunday, but there's something else we needed. We needed a perfect high priest who could offer that sacrifice. And Jesus alone could be that perfect high priest, and he could only be that perfect high priest if he did this. Now, if you cheat, it's not cheating, by the way, ever to read the Word of God, so let me rephrase that. If you just look ahead, don't want to discourage anyone uh, from reading the Word, but if you just look ahead, you're going to see his argument, even in this chapter. Christ had to be made like his brethren. If he was going to be our high priest, he had to know what it's like to be human. He had to know what it's like to be tempted and tried. Did he sin as we do? No. Perfect. Sinless. But to be a high priest and to represent the people that you are put in priesthood over, you have to be made like them. Now that's going to bring us to a question in a little while of the wording of this that might seem troubling at first, but we want to look at it. But this text tells us that is necessary. In fact, God, who is described here in this verse as the one, Him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. That's interesting wording, isn't it? It's true wording, but it would remind us of the wording that we were talking about in chapter 1 about Jesus. Because if we looked at those early parts of the exordium where it said that He has been appointed heir of all things through whom also God made the worlds, the universe... We said, well, that is parallel to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, in which he says all things made by him and for him. Very much parallel to what's said here of the Father. Is that a conflict? No. We spoke about it at the time. Creation is a work of God. That means Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in it, right? Because it's one God. God is the creator. And so again, uh, stretches our minds to dwell on these concepts, but it is true. So again, what is said here can be said of the Father. He is the one uh, for whom all things are made and by whom are all things. Now, it brings us to this point. This is the one who is bringing many sons to glory. And thank Him for it. We would be without hope if that was not His mission, plan, goal, work to bring many of us to glory. And that's what it says. In fact, it says it was fitting for Him, for God the Father, to do this in order to bring many sons to glory. If many sons were going to be brought to glory, this is what was fitting. This is what must take place. So we need to recognize that. If we were going to see salvation brought to men, it had to happen this way. It doesn't matter if you think you've come up with another way. Your way is wrong. It wouldn't have worked. God in His infinite wisdom said, this is the way that I can send 
my son into the world who freely would come, who would take on humanity for himself, become a man, become the perfect high priest through all that he suffers, through all he experiences, and not only be the perfect sacrifice, but the perfect priest who offers the sacrifice. Only in this way can this people be delivered. Can many sons be brought to glory? And so that brings us to our second point. What way is it? So we say it's fitting that God would bring many people to glory by making Christ described here as the captain of our salvation, perfect through suffering. Now, we want to pause here because there's a surprising statement there, isn't it? Jesus had to be made perfect. This might remind you if we went back to chapter 1, we quoted a moment ago that Jesus, having finished His atoning work and being highly exalted to the right hand of the Father, becomes greater than the angels. Like That just doesn't seem right at first, does it? Jesus, eternally God, now becomes greater. We talked about how this was in His incarnational mission. In His divinity, He's always been greater than the angels. But in His humanity, like us, made unto like us, like His brethren, He's made lower than the angels, as a man, lower than the angels. But He didn't stay lower than the angels, did He? Even in His humanity, He transcended the angels and became more glorious than them. How? By completing this work and becoming the messianic king. Being declared as God's son. Not just in His divinity now, but in His hypostatic state. Fully God and fully man, He is greater than the angels. He's received a name greater than theirs. What is that name? Well, the author tells you, For unto which angel did He ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. No angel was called singularly son. Only Christ. And so again, Christ, it says here, uh, a very similar kind of thing. It says here that He was made perfect through sufferings. And we would say again, this boggles our mind, how could the one who is eternally perfect be made perfect? Was He less than perfect? Not in His divinity. And again, we've got to be careful here because you don't want to separate. He's not two persons, one divine, one human. He's one person who has two natures, one divine, one human. Joined together perfectly and inseparably in one person. That is what uh, 2,000 years of church theology has told us. They're right. But again, how do we say this? We say in this incarnation, in this mission on which He was sent, to become the heir of David, David's greater son, the, the messianic king, the one who would be crowned, who would be highly exalted, who would sit at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning forevermore. In this way, by what he did, he was perfected. Now again, I ask you to say, how is this? Well, this author is going to tell you at length as we move into the chapters ahead, but let me ask you to think about this. Before the incarnation, could Jesus be the perfect high priest? No. He wouldn't have had to come in the incarnation and take on flesh if He could have been. Again, this author is going to set out, to be, to be a priest, you have to represent the people under you. And to do that, you have to be like those people. You have to understand their temptations and their trials. If you came to me in a counseling session asking me to uh, talk to you about a situation 
and I've not been in that situation, I'm going to try my best to empathize and use the Word of God to help guide where, what you should do, suggest what you should do. But my friends, I may not fully understand what it's like to be in that situation. It's one of the reasons Charles Spurgeon used to say, uh, when a student would come to him, this is in lectures to his students, and say, I, I want to go into the ministry, he would say, his first question was, tell me how you've suffered. Tell me how you've suffered. He said, if a man has not suffered, he shouldn't be a minister. He shouldn't be ministering to people who have never suffered. We have to know what it's like to be in pain, to be in difficult places, to be able to minister to those who are in valleys. In valleys. And so again, Jesus had to become like us. He had to be tempted. He had to be tried. He had to suffer. In this way, He was perfected. And that word simply means to be made complete. To be made complete for the mission given to Him to be the perfect high priest. Now what differentiates Him from the previous high priest? Well, hold on, we're going to get there eventually in Hebrews. But he makes an argument, doesn't he, that Christ, in the order of Melchizedek, is a greater high priest than the Levitical high priest for many reasons. Number one, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Christ didn't. They could only come to the presence of God one day a year on Yom Kippur and only for a very short time. Christ can abide forever in the presence of our Heavenly Father, interceding on our behalf. No matter who the greatest high priest was ever, who ever lived, eventually, guess what was going to happen? He was going to die. He was eventually going to die, and you'd be left with a lesser high priest. Our high priest will reign and serve forever and evermore. And so, my friends, all of this theology points to why he alone could be the perfect high priest and why we needed him, but also why he had to come into this world in the way that he did and be made like us and suffer like us, be tempted and tried like us, yet never sinning so he could be the perfect atonement for us and then be our perfect high priest. This author says he did that. He telio, he completed the mission. He was made perfect. That word is a form of the word we've looked at before. Uh, telos, the, the end, aim, or goal. Here he had to meet that end, aim, or goal. He had to be made complete as our perfect high priest. And so that's exactly what happened. He could only do this by being made perfect for that work by becoming a man while remaining fully God, enduring humiliation, temptation, trial, tribulation, and remaining spotless. Now, if you want to know more about that, then you're going to be really happy in the months and months ahead as we continue to walk through this letter because he is going to get into a lot of depth on that very point. But that brings us to our third and final point this morning because in all of that, we don't want to miss what this verse is telling us. This verse is telling us something beautiful, something simple that can be expounded in a lot of detail and will be, but at its heart is a very simple message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to redeem people, to be uh, through the sufferings that he endured to bring many sons to glory. This was the will of God the Father, that he would come into the world and that he would bring many sons to glory. He accomplished that mission. He accomplished that mission. But do you notice what this text says about him? It doesn't just say uh, to make Jesus perfect through sufferings. 
it says it, in my translation to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now your translation may word it differently. And I'll tell you why they're, and by the way, even like the NASB changed their word here. I think uh, a previous translation, uh, I can't remember that now, I think it's author. But before I think it was uh, forerunner, I can't remember. But there's a ton of different uh, translations of this word. The word in Greek is archegos, and it, it's a complicated word. There is no one English word that sums up what it means. This is why translators have a lot of difficulty with it. And by the way, this is often why translation itself is very difficult because you have things like this where there is no perfect word that matches. A, a word in Greek or Hebrew carries more meaning than any single word in English. So the way oftentimes translators used to do that was they would put two words in and put one of them in italicis to let you know uh, this is an added word, a supplied word to help you understand uh, that it's added. It's not in the original text. The original word was one word. We're giving you two to help understand the meaning. Since translators don't like to do that, and I understand why, they've chosen a whole host of different words. The King James, the New King James, uses captain. It's a good word. Archegos has two meanings, primarily. The originator something like forerunner, author, and the present ruler, captain, chief, something like that. So we have all kinds of words that you might see, and they're all good words. If you have captain, it speaks of the authority of Christ. It captures the present meaning, but what do you lose? It doesn't say anything about him being the forerunner, the trailblazer, the originator, the author, the founder. That's in that meaning. And if you use words like those, author, pioneer, founder, originator, which speak of the initial work of Christ, they don't carry the continuing authority that he has now. And this word has both those meanings, so that's why it's difficult for translators. What does the author want us to know? Jesus is the one who accomplished the great work, still governs, watches over, ministers on our behalf. It was once and for all completed at Calvary, but he's still ministering for us at the right hand of the Father. He is our high priest. That's not a fiction. That's not a fiction. And so again, this has this picture of him being the captain of our salvation, the trailblazer, the one who opened the way that we might follow him. But he didn't cease being our king. He's still our king. He made the way, and we walk down that way serving and honoring him. And so how do we do that? By placing our faith in him. By placing our faith in Him, trusting in Him, recognizing that He is who He says He is. He is the captain of our salvation, the author of our salvation. It's in Christ and Christ alone that we are saved. No other option, no other way. And as we consider the table that we're about to come to this morning, the table of the King of glory, we need to recognize that we have a place at this table only because it was purchased by our King. Only because of that. And because he calls us to gather as his people before him at his table. This isn't a hard picture to figure out. We've used this illustration before. But you don't just invite yourself into a king's chamber to eat dinner, do you? Knock at the door. I'm here. I want to eat. In the old days, that might have got your head detached from your body. This king invites you. This king purchased your place at this table by his blood. 
My friends, He invites us here this morning. And so we want to remember as we come to this table what this passage is telling us. There is so much depth of theology around this passage. But at its heart, this passage tells you the mission that Christ came on was to bring many sons to glory. And He did it because He is the author and captain of our salvation. He alone could do it. He alone did do it. When we come to this table, we come to His table in celebration of that fact, of what He accomplished. In reverence, in remembrance of what it cost to purchase our place here, that His body and His blood were shed for that redemption. And as we partake of the meal, we remember the humiliation and suffering that He endured to be made like us and to purchase us. But we also remember that that isn't the end of the story, is it? Yes, He was placed in the grave to show that He truly died. But He didn't remain there. He arose victorious because it couldn't hold Him. The grave could not keep Him. He arose triumphant and was exalted to the right hand of the Father. Ascended there. And there He rules and reigns and intercedes and ministers. Even as we speak, our great King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so as we come to His table, we come with so many different aspects. Thanksgiving, praise, a recognition of what it cost Him. But it's called the Eucharist because it's given in thanksgiving. Given in thanksgiving for what Christ did for us. And so with that in mind, Let's join together in prayer.